Hello and welcome, I'm Vernon Mann with another tale from TV assignments to trouble spots in the 70s and 80s. We've just got into Afghanistan from Pakistan in 1978 and, courtesy of Pakistan military intelligence, have linked up with a band of Mujahideen fighters who are charged with hosting and protecting us while we cover the withdrawal of Russian occupying forces. We're travelling in two long wheelbase Land Rovers, one containing my camera crew, the other carrying two ex-military engineers and our big satellite dish, from which we hope to transmit one of the first, if not the first, live news reports from inside the country. The man who seems to be in charge of the Mujahideen is a chubby gentleman, weathered face, thick lips, amazing beard and piercing blue eyes. He grumpily indicates that the producer and I should travel with them in their battered Toyota truck. Our two Land Rovers are to follow. There's not a lot of space in the back of the truck. Two of us and eight Mujahideen, guns and petrol cans and ammunition boxes and bits and bobs. It's steaming hot, and although we're sweaty enough, our body odour is of nothing to that coming from our protective warriors. They likely have limited access to running water, and obviously use it sparingly. There's no chat along the way. Our new companions, the men tasked with keeping us safe, stare at us but turn away from eye contact. We try introducing ourselves in me Tarzan, new Jane fashion, but they're not responsive. It occurs to us that so far, none of our new friends have attempted to speak to us in English, apart from the head honcho, and his English is pretty basic. Communications could become a problem. We drive slowly along a wide road towards Jalalabad, negotiating bomb craters and shell holes, past wrecked cars and burnt-out Russian armoured vehicles, some on their sides, others on their backs. At the side of the road, a dog with visible red sores on its back is eating the remains of a Russian soldier, ribs sticking out of his tunic. Oddly, he's the only casualty we see. It's a couple of hours before we turn off the shell-shocked road onto a dirt track and we sense we're nearing our destination. We suppose we're being taken to their headquarters, a military establishment with armoured vehicles and a squad of fighting men. What we see in the dusty distance is a scattering of low-level, sandy-coloured buildings shimmering in the sunshine and a couple of camels tethered to a post. We drive into a large square courtyard surrounded by mud-built buildings a couple of storeys high, grenade launchers and gun emplacements on top of the walls, red mountains in the distance. No sign of guards or lookouts, let alone troops and tanks. We are ushered into one of the buildings, a large room with threadbare Afghan carpets on the dirt floor. Tea is brought in, sweet and black and welcome. It turns out that some of the Mujahideen can speak a bit of English, so first-name introductions are made at last, and mostly soon forgotten. They tell us we're sharing sleeping quarters with the fighters. The tea room doubles as a bedroom, so we lay out our sleeping bags on the dirt floor. There are no loos, just a mud-walled outhouse with a hole in the ground. And there's a tap, which trickles brown water, if you're lucky. The tape editor, the one with the baked beans, decides he's having none of this communal kipping, and says he'll sleep in the truck to make sure no one tampers with his equipment or his beans. The army guys do their own thing. Sensibly, they've brought a tent. Supper is served on the carpets, tomatoes and rice and bread, eaten by hand. It's an uncomfortable meal, not just because conversation is difficult, but sitting, squatting for an extended period, plays havoc with my knees. 
Years later, I have them replaced. And so to bed, the Sony shortwave tuned into the BBC World Service News, drowned almost by the grunts and snores of 15 or so Mujahideen fighters tossing and turning on their blankets. I sleep fitfully, hoping for some action the next day. Just before dawn, the men begin to stir. One of the younger fighters shakes me from my half-sleep, points to the radio and says, Give! What? I say sleepily. Give me! He replies, pointing again at the radio. No! I say. Give! He says. No! He makes a grab for it. I grip the radio and shout loudly, No! But it's snatched from my hands. Another older fighter notices what's going on and yells something at the boy, who immediately lets go of his potential prize. At first light comes a call to prayer, and the dormitory, for want of a better word, empties apart from us. We get the gear together and tidy our sleeping bags. Breakfast is bread, rice, tomatoes and tea. We watch our tape editor forking beans from the can and tell him he should be more discreet and eat somewhere where the Mujahideen can't see him, otherwise he'll have to share his beans with fighters as they're sharing their food with us. He and his beans quickly disappear. We hear aircraft flying high above us and the sporadic thump of bombs going off in the distance. The Russians are bombing the Mujahideen somewhere, but not close enough for us to get any footage. We're desperate to film some action, but the commander says stay put. The fighters mill around aimlessly, watching our ex-army engineers rig the satellite dish, ogling our Land Rovers. Important-looking men whiz to and fro in remarkably new and shiny Toyota trucks. We're not allowed to film or talk to them. We inspect the compound, a jumble of basic mud buildings inside a perimeter wall. Ten camels are now tethered outside the entrance. Nothing much is going on and before we know it, it's rice and tomato time again. Day one with the Mujahideen. Bloody boring. Day two, we insist we be allowed to drive around the area to film burnt-out vehicles, shelled roads. As part of the report, we hope to file as soon as possible. No, they say. Landmines. We have to follow one of their vehicles through the minefields to ensure we aren't blown up. OK, we get that. Let's go. So sorry. Today there are no spare trucks. We're screwed. This is getting ridiculous. Next day, though, the senior Mujahideen tells us we should be ready to travel at dawn the next day. We will liberate Jalalabad airport from the invaders, he promises. Action at last. Jalalabad is just a few miles away and the Russians are still in firm control of its small airport. Our gang aim to take the airport from them. Excitedly, we prepare. The crew recheck their equipment, the tape editor and the army guys make sure the editing gear and satellite dish are ready for what we hope will be a big story. We don't sleep much, nor do our warrior roommates. There's a lot of shifting and farting. We emerge into the early morning to find several hundred Mujahideen gathered in a far corner of the compound. God only knows where they'd come from. All are heavily armed and pumped up, ready for battle. We see men holding two wooden poles, a brown woolen blanket stretched between them. It contains a copy of the Quran. The fighters line up in single file and kiss the Quran as they pass under the blanket, shouting in their language, God is great. Then they begin to walk through the minefield, laid by Russian soldiers, staying in the tracks of the man ahead of them, following an older warrior they trusted to lead them safely through. Progress is slow, it's very hot. We film the procession and individuals, their gnarled and weathered beaten faces, resigned to what could be a pretty nasty fight. The Mujahideen have plenty of AK-47s, the Kalashnikov assault rifle used in countless conflicts around the world, 
an uncomplicated but deadly weapon. They have shoulder-hosted RPGs, rocket-propelled grenades and a shed load of mortars, not particularly sophisticated weaponry to take on a world power. We trekked towards Jalalabad Airport for two long, dusty and tense hours. The first shots are fired as we're a hundred yards from the earthen banks put up by the Russians to protect the airport perimeter. We can't dive for cover as they do in war movies, we're still in a minefield. But we do increase our pace to a panicky trot and reach the cover of the walls without casualties. The Mujahideen crank up their RPGs and send salvo after salvo over the walls to where they suppose the Russians to be. The Russians reply with small arms fire. I hear a bullet zing over my head. The Afghans set up their mortars. Some don't work. I see one guy looking down the loaded tube and scratching his head in puzzlement. He's lucky to have a head. The Russian soldiers continue to fire, bullets flying all over the place. We're getting some goodish footage and speculate. Do the Mujahideen have a plan? Are they going to storm the walls and try to take the airport? Or do they have something else in mind? They have something else in mind. Almost as one, and for no apparent reason, they stop firing. What the hell's going on? I ask the commander, who could understand English. He points to the men. They are exhausted, he shouts, and stalks away, as if insulted by the question. All around me the warriors settle down in safe spots against the wall and drift off to sleep. It's siesta time. We don't believe it. Inexplicably, the Russians stop firing too. I have a conflab with the crew. We decide this must be just a lull. Maybe they're waiting for reinforcements or a resupply of weapons. We decide it'll all kick off again later and we'll get a good story. So we're not off as well. An hour later, the Mujahideen begin to stir, gather their guns and mortars and form a long, loose line. This is it, we think. They're going to storm the embankments and go for the airport. But they don't. They line up behind the same old guy who led them through the minefields earlier and set off. The battle was over. They're going home. We have a story without an ending. A couple of days later we're hanging around wondering what to do with ourselves when the commander and his henchmen run towards us shouting, looks of panic in their eyes. They shove us unceremoniously across the compound towards and into an old dusty barn-like structure. Saudis, they scream. Saudis, hide, hide. They indicate we should hide under a cobwebby bench and stay there until they come to get us. Stay quiet, we're told. They cover the bench with old sacking and leave us sweltering and wandering in our cramped hiding place. The commander and his henchmen are scared, that's for sure. But why? They come to give us the all clear an hour later. We scramble out of our hideaway brushing dust from my hair and try to find out more about the Saudis. We didn't find out much. They kill you, grunted the commander. Better you hide. Absolutely. We decide the Saudis must have been a group of Arab volunteer fighters recruited by Osama bin Laden, who's been supporting Mujahideen resistance since the Russians invaded. The Arab fighters are more militantly Islamic than our merry band, which might explain why our boys were a little worried. Under bin Laden, the Arab volunteers morphed into Al-Qaeda. Not quite yet, thankfully. There are days of inaction believed only by small diversions, like the arrival in the yard of two small white chickens. They're sick. Their bottoms are red raw. They have nasty sores all over. They make no noise. Often they fall over as they scratch around the yard, spending almost as much time on their backs as on their feet. Four days later they disappear. We have time to speculate on this. Nothing else is happening right now. Have they been killed by a fox? 
Does Afghanistan have foxes? Had they been abducted? Deep down we know the answer. They were dished up with rice and tomatoes that night. They were not very well alive and not very well cooked when dead. We sit cross-legged on the old rugs and prepare for negotiation. We're not going to eat those chickens. With benevolent smiles on their faces, our hosts indicate the chickens are ours, their honoured guests. We indicate our rejection, explaining as best we can that we can have chicken any time in Peshawar and that we'd be greatly honoured if they would eat them. After much argument, their hunger overcomes their honour and they pounce on the chickens like they've never eaten meat before. There were a number of forays with our group. We filmed them firing mortars and shooting their AKs at unseen targets. They show us a ditch they dug out on a mountainside overlooking Russian positions. They say they've successfully attacked the enemy from here days earlier. The body of one of their fighters lies as a testament to the fight, his blood spattered all over the rocks. You can hear the Russian aircraft, but they're too high to be visible. We get some good shots of bombs exploding in the surrounding area, but none are close enough to worry us. We just jump a little. For months afterwards, back in the UK, I felt very uncomfortable every time I heard a plane overhead. This was unfortunate, as I live on the Heathrow Approach flight path. We have enough material for a story and go back to base to edit it. The edit kit is set up next to the satellite dish under a canvas awning. The Mujahideen huddle at the back, watching us as we work, applauding and clapping every time they see themselves or their friends on screen. We put together a minute and a half. It looks quite lively. When London sees it, they want me to go live into the news that night. I protest that it will be four in the morning Afghan time, so nothing will be happening. They run my report, then the newscaster says into my earpiece, Well, that looks pretty scary, Vernon. What's going on there now? I begin to explain, live to several million viewers, that it's the middle of the night and that the fighters are sleeping, but they will be up and fighting again at first light, blah, blah, blah. And as I'm doing so, one of the Mujahideen behind me stirs, sits up and scratches his beard, yawns and stretches, rubs his beard again and lies back down on his blanket. You may as well have been singing Bar Bar Black Sheep, says the cameraman, suppressing his laughter once I'd signed off. No one would have been listening to a word you said. They would all have been watching the Mujahideen doing his morning stretches. One afternoon with our protectors, we're driving around looking for anything that we might work into a story. We decide to stop for a toilet break when we hear aircraft high above us. Seconds later, there's an ear-splitting whoosh and the sound of what we think is close gunfire. We dive to the ground and stay there, terrified, as explosion after explosion blasts our brains for what seems many, many minutes. The earth shakes, really. Then a deafening silence, but none of us moves for a second or so. We tentatively raise our heads and survey the scene. A whole acre of land is scarred and smoking from the bombs that have fallen. Cluster bombs, hundreds of small, deadly bomblets spewed out from a bigger bomb, dropped by the Soviets to eradicate villages and destroy Mujahideen, military vehicles and personnel. In this case, they targeted us, or perhaps thought we were Mujahideen. I staggered to my feet and see that one of the bomblets has gone off just one metre from where I'd been lying on the ground. None of us was hurt, lucky indeed. I resolved to get the vehicles re-mudded as soon as possible. Cluster bombs are banned in 2010. But you can bet your life that some of the world's bad guys still have them in their armoury and they're still being manufactured. Apart from the immediate loss of life and damage, the problem is that many of the bombs don't explode and just lie around for decades, 
going off when touched normally by children. They're still killing people to this day. The cluster bomb incident marks the end of the Afghan adventure and we hug our friendly fighters as they leave us at the Pakistan border. Major Karkar's there to meet us. He still has a hire car. Back at the house in Peshawar, we've barely unpacked when the British military attaché arrives on his bicycle. Welcome back, chaps, he says. Productive trip? He's not a very likeable character. Doesn't even give us his name. But he does accept a glass of wine, which we suspect has come from his embassy anyway, and begins to grill us about the trip. What do we think of this? What do we think of that? What sort of munitions did the Mujahideen have? How many men? How many vehicles? And so on. I interrupt him. I say, look, Mr. Attaché, I'm all for queen and country, but I'm under no obligation to tell you anything. I'm not a blinking spy. Anyway, if you've watched our stuff on the news, you know as much as we do, and that's all you're going to get. He leaves, not very happily, on his bike. The next night, we drive to the American Club, where it's known that you can get a decent meal and wine. You have to be a member, though, to get in. We ask to see the manager, a tanned, mustachioed, world-weary-looking character appears, and once he knows we're journalists, lets us in. He shows us to a table and brings us a bottle of red wine. OK, guys, he draws in a Texan accent, which I can't do. Let's get one or two things straight. He explains that he's not just the club manager, he's the CIA. Hell, guys, it's hardly a fucking secret. That's true, everybody knows who he is. Listen, he says, I don't give a shit about this war. I'm so fucking bored with it all, but I gotta give something to those arseholes back in Langley. He proposes a temporary membership in return for information about what we'd seen on our trip. The bottle of red still has the cork in. Should we become spies? We briefly confer and reckon we can give him a summary of what we've filmed without prejudicing or betraying anyone. He joins us for supper and the corks come out of many a bottle. I doubt if he'll remember anything we told him. Or was he pretending to be drunk, part of his CIA training? At the house we begin to pack and are dismayed at the amount of stuff we've accumulated while hanging about in Peshawar. During our six weeks in country, we bought carpets by the score. I alone had 13... We bought handmade rocking chairs, tents, souvenirs, antiques, bric-a-brac. We go to the market to buy more suitcases. At customs, the officer throws up his hands in mock despair. Do you have an export certificate from the government's antiquities department? He asks me as he examines the first of four suitcases packed with carpets. No, I reply. What am I to do, he cries as he lifts a large brass birdcage from one of my colleague's cases. This is very fine Pakistan antique. He is looking quite distressed. We begin to think we'll lose the lot to this petty bureaucrat, or at least to be asked for bakshish. He opens a large suitcase, the producer's. On the top of his dirty linen is a small child's cricket bat. The customs man's face lights up with joy. He gets into a chat with the Australian producer about kids and cricket mostly cricket. I will tell you what I will do, he says finally, smiling now. I will give you a bit of a test. We hold our collective breaths. If you can tell me who is the captain of the Australian cricket team, I will let all these things go through. If not, well, he shrugs his shoulders and puts on his strict customs officer face again. He looks hopefully at the producer. Alan Border, says the producer without hesitation. We're on our way home, carpets and all. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for listening. I'm Vernon Mann. Tune in to the next episode. Music